um, I'm here to talk about something that has been near and dear to my heart, mostly because I, I've, I've wrestled with this alongside college students who have come to me and talked to me about the things that they're wrestling with as young people struggling with the scriptures, struggling with their faith. That, combined with my wife's youngest brother, Drew, uh, being very vocal about his struggles with Christianity and over about a five-year process, what he called deconstructing his faith, ending with a bit of a, a miniature manifesto that he wrote to the family, basically saying, I am not a Christian anymore. And so experiencing the deep pain of all of that and saying, you know what, I saw how my brother went through this and he just made, in my opinion, a lot of poor choices in the process of wrestling with doubt. So that's what kind of was the, the impetus for writing the book and, and along that process of writing it, God helped me to discover a lot of things that were true from the scriptures. But I want to start with a story. I'm a military kid. Uh, my, my stepdad was in the military for 30 years. I'm an Air Force brat, and so we grew up all over the world. And uh, one of the places that we lived in when I was in second grade was Minot, North Dakota, where uh, it's, it's very familiar with blizzards and storms and stuff like that. Minot Air Force Base is this older Air Force Base, and my mom and dad had just been married for a couple of years, and so I had a new stepbrother and a new stepsister, and so I had a, a brother to play with all the time. And so we went out, I remember this one particular time, on Minot Air Force Base to this playground that was on the base. And playgrounds back in the 80s were not what they are today. Like, I have kids, and if your kids are climbing, you could just not watch them at all. If they fall down, they'll land on shredded rubber, bounce right back up, and they'll be totally fine. That's not the way it was in the 80s. Everything was made out of metal and wood. And on military bases, um, they didn't really care for things very, very well at the time. Um, and one of the things that was on this playground that my brother John and I went to was a seesaw, like a teeter-totter. They don't have those anymore at playgrounds, but um, one person gets on one side, the other person gets on the other, and you just go back and forth like it's the 1940s. Uh, you just go back, it's kind of lame. But being young boys, we got bored with the average playing on a seesaw, teeter-totter, and so we started to do fun little things, because that's what boys do. We're just stupid that way. So I remember laying down on my side of the teeter-totter with my face toward the fulcrum, and John jumping up on the other side and pulling it down. And when he did, I slid forward like this, and this teeter-totter was made out of wood, old wood, splintered wood. And a splinter about this big slid right into my chest. Now, it didn't go into my heart or anything. It just slid along my skin. And I had a similar reaction to what you're reacting with right now, just this, uh, and seeing blood as a second grader, that's the end. Um, so I remember running back to my house and my mom seeing me, and she's going, whoa, uh, and takes me to the bathroom, puts down the toilet seat, sits, sits me on the toilet seat, and grabs the tweezers. And she starts to, to dig into my chest and pull out these little pieces of wood. And I remember what my mom was doing. In that moment, I remember what my mom was doing was what was best for me. Like, I knew that in my mind. But in the midst of the pain and the pieces of wood and the blood, I still had my doubts about whether what was happening to me was actually good. Sometimes in life, when things get very difficult, it could seem nearly impossible to trust God, both in the big things in life and in, in the little ones as well. But regardless of our state of mind or our attitude of heart, 
there is one thing that should comfort us when we just don't understand the confusing elements of life, and that's this. No matter how great our doubt is in God, God is always greater. No matter how great our doubt is, and it can be great, God is always greater. Let me give you an example from Scripture. John chapter 20, verse 25. This is uh, the famous doubting Thomas. He says this. One of the, uh, one of the disciples uh, once boldly said, after the other disciples had told him about the resurrected Christ, so most of the disciples see him after he's been resurrected. Thomas is not there. And about um, after they experience him, they come to Thomas and tell him that they've seen the, res- the resurrected Christ. And he says this, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now you should pause here and consider what Thomas is saying. Never? I will never believe? I mean, that's a pretty audacious thing to say after you've just spent three years alongside the Messiah during his public ministry, seeing firsthand the kinds of things he could do, healing the sick, raising the dead, calming storms, kind of a big deal. Not to mention knowing that Jesus himself said several times that he was going to rise from the dead after he was killed. But that's what Thomas said, and of course... Jesus eventually came through for him. A little over a week later, Jesus showed up face-to-face with Thomas, and the doubter's heart was convinced. Jesus then went on to say to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, Thomas's doubt was great. I will never believe. But God was greater. How can we apply this to our lives? The Lord is never repulsed by our doubt. In fact, he's actively willing to pursue us even in the process of us questioning him. Sometimes in life when things get bad and and doubts rise to the surface in our hearts, the things that are true don't feel true, do they? God's love His grace, his sovereignty, his existence is more real than we can ever fathom. But it certainly doesn't feel that way from time to time, right? But just because all those things may not seem to be true doesn't mean that our assumptions are correct. And in the middle of all that, Jesus is saying, Blessed are you who has not seen and yet has believed. It's encouraging to know that when I just don't get it, God is always greater. Now, let me pause here for a minute and and address something very specific that I think is important. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief, all right? So let's just work off this definition here. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Uh, Unbelief is an intentional choice that someone makes to say, for example, there is no God. I have defined that in my life. That's what unbelief is. Doubt is a wrestling process. Just the same thing as temptation is not the same thing as sin. 
Temptation can lead to sin, just like doubt can lead to unbelief, but they are not equal to one another. I think there's a fear of expressing doubts, especially in the Christian church today, because they think, oh, I don't believe anymore. No, no, no. It's a wrestling process, okay? Those are not the same thing. And we know this to be true based upon what Scripture communicates to us. So in my, in my research for the book, I decided to go to the Old Testament and New Testament to find examples of doubt to help me understand, is this something that is just common in the scriptures? And sure enough, it is. The Psalms, for example, um, where the normal pocket of human emotion lives for like the average American, the Psalms live on the margins. They're like either overly joyful over here or just everything's horrible over here. That's what the Psalms are. So what does that communicate to us? That communicates to us that you're allowed, you're, you're free to experience these things. Because this is scripture we're talking about. I ran across a, across a quote from a, from a pastor who said, the Psalms give us permission to beat on God's chest. And I love that visceral imagery of just being angry or being upset or sad and just burying your face in God's chest and just beating on it. That's a, you can't read the Psalms and go, no, I shouldn't wrestle with doubt. Because it's a constant wrestling with doubt, okay? So there's an Old Testament example. New Testament, I just gave you Doubting Thomas, but actually my favorite that I ran across in all this process was actually John the Baptist. If you think about who John the Baptist was, he was the precursor to the Messiah. He was the voice in the desert crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. He um, uh, left in his mother's womb when he was near Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was the one to point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and when he did, the sky opened up, and a voice from heaven, God the Father, came down and said, this is my son. You would think that a literal voice from heaven would provide all the evidence that John the Baptist would need to never doubt again that Jesus was the Messiah, right? Yet at the end of his life, John the Baptist is in jail, getting ready to be executed, and he sends two of his disciples to Jesus and, say, and says, ask him if he's the one or if we should expect another. And again, you should read that and go, really? Really? Like, what's your deal? But oddly enough, I read that and I'm comforted by that. Because what, what does that tell me? That gives me permission to wrestle in the same way that John the Baptist wrestled. The man who heard the audible voice of God the Father, the creator of the universe, that said, this is my son, still doubted. So I'm a practical guy. I think it's important that we share a few realistic things with you in order to help you get on the solution side of life when it comes to trusting God and the battle with doubt. So um, application is often what I naturally gravitate toward. So I'm going to walk you through four things that can act as weapons to help you trust God in the throes of doubt, okay? Very practical things. Number one, practice thankfulness. The antidote to many of my bad doubts has been an intentional movement toward dwelling on all that I'm thankful for. In a very real sense, thankfulness renews your mind and refreshes your heart in ways that make it nearly impossible to dwell on doubt. Paul Tripp, author Paul Tripp, puts this well in his book on suffering. He says this, It is exactly at the point when you are tempted to think that you're not blessed that counting your blessings is most important. 
A thankful heart is the best defense against a doubting heart. A defense against doubt, as a defense against doubt, it is really important to give yourself to quiet moments when you look at the trail behind you and what is now around you for evidences that God is good and worthy of your trust. And Paul's right. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we are incredibly forgetful people. When it comes to remembering the miraculous ways that God has worked in our lives, we're kind of like, what have you done for me lately, God? There are probably, probably, I'm guessing, multiple examples of God's provision, his presence, his care, his love that you've experienced that you could most likely recall if you simply took the time to think about them. You ever write something down in a journal of what God did, and then you just like leave it, and you come back to it maybe years later, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember, that was a big moment for me, but you don't even remember it. The only reason that, that you did is because you happened to read it in a journal that you wrote. So remember, and after you remember, rejoice. Praise God for how he's worked, and watch your focus shift from dark, gloomy doubt to bright thankfulness and trust. So each week on Sunday, we're, we've been kind of bad about this lately, um, but especially during the pandemic, uh, my family and I would pause during the day on Sunday and do family devotions. And uh, when Hayden, my youngest, was four, she called them family demotions, which was awesome. Um, yeah, I got, I got taken down every single week. Um, but we read through a kid's Bible study, we, we ask questions, we pray, we sing some worship songs. But my favorite part of family devotions is when we do the thankfulness jar. So Rachel bought this big mason jar with a lid, and it's got this slit on the top of it, and we pass out little pieces of paper and, and like markers or colored pencils, and we write down the things that we were thankful for from that past week with our name and the date. And then we go around, and we read them all out loud, and then we, we fold them and, and slip them into the jar and watch the jar fill up over time. And then at Thanksgiving, every single year, we dump the jar out, and then we just fish around and pull out a few each person and remember what we were thankful for, how God worked. Very simple, very easy. Kids love doing it, but it helps you go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that back in January when God did that. That's just incredible. See, practicing thankfulness is soothing to a life agitated by doubts. In thankfulness, we refocus our attention on the giver of all good things and not on the circumstances that never seem to be quite good enough for our ever-thirsty hearts. When we drink from the fountain of living water, we worship with gratitude and trust instead of agonize over our doubts. So, practice thankfulness. I told you this is super practical. Number two, get with real and the right people. Get with real and the right people. It's always important to be reminded that you cannot battle your doubts with any amount of success as an isolated island. That might sound, yeah, of course, but most of the people who battle hard with their doubts and fail, this is what they do. They just slowly back away from Christian fellowship. They back away, they back away, they back away, and they, like, where'd they go? It's probably happened in this church, my guess. But despite what our individualistic culture may push, Christianity is not a solo thing. 
This is why it's so vital to plug in with a body of believers. Without the presence of other believers in your life, you stop trusting God and you become susceptible to a flurry of doubts that could easily be handled if you were simply in healthy community. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. In other words, if you're getting input from multiple people, you're going to make better decisions than you would on your own without any guidance. When you intentionally surround yourself with the right people who love God, who value authenticity, willing to go deep, and are bold enough to call you toward godly living. You have anybody in your life who loves Jesus and they're just annoying enough to get in your face and tell you when you're not walking with him? You need those people. You need those people in your life. When that happens, your trust in God builds and your doubts don't linger and consume you. They can't because, as the saying goes, there's safety in numbers. Just make sure those numbers value their relationship with Christ more than anything else. I know in a world of AirPods and custom order everything, good community seems almost impossible, but I promise you that it's worth it to pursue, especially when you're wrestling with fully trusting God. I also know that it can feel like you're in community simply because you're surrounded by people all the time when you're at work or when you're in your friend groups or even when you're at the grocery store. But real relationships require depth in a way that proximity alone won't help you grow. Likewise, the uniqueness that we face in today's culture, don't assume that just because you're well-connected in the digital world, via texting and social media, it means you're living in community. Church and authentic Christian camaraderie happen in the context of face-to-face -face interaction. If we know a person solely via the veneer of a social media profile or edited text messages, we don't know that person entirely. Sure, you can begin to understand who a person is by reading what they appreciate, reading their text messages, seeing what kind of things they enjoy and what they do through their Instagram feed, but that's only part of the picture. We're deceiving ourselves if we buy into the fact that we can get to know someone deeply if we only communicate via text messaging, and social media. Why? Because you are created for something much deeper than what social media provides. Much deeper. The real you is the real you, and you shouldn't want people to only experience the polished version of your real self. So when you doubt, do it alongside actual, live, real human beings. If you genuinely plug in, others will eventually see through the shine of your edited self. And that's when real change, real help, real hope, and real growth happens. So let's never forget the value of getting with the right people as we struggle with trusting God. There is no good substitute for the real thing. So find your people and walk with Jesus as a group. Number three, continually Remind yourself of the gospel. You're not supposed to have favorite points in a sermon. This one's my favorite. Okay? Continually remind yourself of the gospel. One of the best ways to trust the Lord and fight back against doubt is to repeatedly remind yourself of the truth. 
there is a hypnotizing effect that our culture can have on us because it is relentless in its attempts to sway you toward unbelief. Social media, advertising, YouTube, movies, television, podcasts, practically everything all the time is pushing you in a direction that leads away from God. Look at me on this. Whether you know it or not, you are constantly being discipled. Right now, you are being discipled. The culture looks at you and just says, shh, it's okay. You don't need to take your faith seriously. You can compromise at work. Nobody's going to know. It'll be fine. Jesus is enough on the weekends. You go on Sunday, that's fine. You don't need to actually really practically apply him to your life the other six days of the week. You don't need him all day, every day. Listen, Jesus Christ is not a vitamin supplement you can add to your life. Okay? Take him in on Sunday and ignore him every other day. He doesn't give you that option. Read the Gospels. He doesn't give you that option. You either crown him as king or you kill him. There's nothing in between. So consequently, if you don't spend consistent time renewing your mind with the true north-pointing good news of the gospel, you'll give in to culture's push and be taken downstream along with so many others who don't follow their creator. I know I've been in ministry for 22 years, and I've seen it happen over and over and over again. People who I thought never would walk away, never. Their Facebook profiles speak against that, and it's heartbreaking. Each of us must gaze into the beauty of the gospel if we're going to have a fighting chance to live in a way that honors God and shuns unbelief. But what does that mean, to gaze into the gospel? It's a great question. You guys ask really good questions here. Um, well, I'll explain it in just a minute, but I think it, and it's a good place to start is always in regular time in God's word. It's called the Bible. Uh, scripture is how God Almighty creator of the universe, chooses to communicate with finite human beings like me. So why would we ever treat something like that with apathy or take it for granted? Our perspective in life should be shaped by the word, knowing that its central message is all about Jesus Christ. One of the things I do with college students, I'm not going to do it here, so just rest easy. The opposite of how Kenny made me feel about 20 minutes ago. Rest easy. There's like a hair on this microphone. It's not mine. Um, one of the things I do with college students, I say, you know, if you guys want to be taken seriously as a Christian, you want to be taken seriously by people who don't believe, how can you expect people to take you seriously as a believer if you've never even read the entirety of the scriptures from cover to cover? Have you read the entire Bible? All of it? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have, because I want to make friends since this is my new church and not enemies. But, and it's easy to do. Just get on Google and type in Bible in a year. You can finish in a year. There's like 800,000 plans to read the Bible in a year. But if you, if you want to take God seriously, why wouldn't you read every word that he said to you? It's like an easy question, right? It's like low-hanging fruit. 
The fact that God himself came down in the form of a human being, lived a life of perfection, was executed unjustly, and conquered death in the resurrection for you, personally for you. It's astounding. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of reality and, his, and the entire history of the universe. His resurrection is the sole reason all of humanity isn't doomed to destruction forever. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is in vain. Everything weighs on the resurrection. And even though maybe you've been to church a lot, you may have heard this over and over and over and over again, we should never grow tired of how magnificent the message of the gospel is. When we truly grasp the lengths God went to in order to rescue us from our own rebellion, it fights back and snaps the binding ropes of doubt that have tied up our hearts. The gospel is everything, and in it we wield the most powerful of all weapons to be used against doubt. Show me a heart forgetting the gospel, and I'll show you a life that is swallowed by the crushing effects of doubt. But show me a life that continually reminds itself of the truth of who Jesus is and who we are as a result of Jesus' work, and I'll show you a life of joy that is overwhelmed with God's goodness and love. So preach the gospel to yourself at all times. Use words Use actions, drink deeply from the scriptures, and break free from the shackles of doubt. Number four, and finally, yeah, we want to share the gospel with ourselves. We also want to share the gospel with others. So not only do we need to regularly preach the gospel to our own hearts, we also need to engage with others about the gospel as well. I am deeply convinced that one of the best ways to place your trust in God and counteract the attacks of doubt in your life is to proactively communicate with others about the message of the gospel. Do you feel a little bit of sweat on your forehead right now? Good, you should. It should make you feel uncomfortable. When we are ushered into God's family, we are given a purpose that is beyond us. This purpose involves us being proactive about communicating our faith with others who need to hear about it. Pastor and author Tim Keller says this, never, we are never drawn in by God without being sent out by him. God, you look at that in the scriptures. It happens all over the place. Abraham, come in. Now go. Moses, come in. Meet with me. Now go. Paul, come in. Now go. We're never drawn in by God without being sent out by him. Sharing the gospel, sure it's scary, sure it's risky, and every single time it involves us killing the default comfort setting that seems to be so powerful in our hearts. And, and I'm not just speaking that this is a you experience, this is a me thing. Personally, I have never, never been 100% comfortable when I share my faith, never. Uh, maybe some other people have, but I haven't. I will tell you this, though. I never feel more alive than when I do. When I communicate the gospel with someone, I, I, we were on a summer mission. I talked to two people from Romania. I shared the gospel with them, and I walked away, and I was like, gosh, that was like exciting and scary, and I feel happy and nervous and warm, 
and intimidated all at the same time. It's all going on at the same time. When I share my faith, my, my mouth is usually dry, my armpits are usually wet, uh, and my heart beats way faster than it normally does. But for, for me, it's never an easy thing to do. But regardless of how the conversation turns out, I always seem to walk away with a renewed sense of purpose and energy. On more than one occasion, after I've shared my faith, I have walked away and verbally communicated out loud, I feel so alive right now. Several years ago when I was in college, I went to an evangelism conference. That's what people do in crew. Um, we went down to Panama City Beach, Florida, to go to this conference to learn how to share our faith and then share our faith with parting spring breakers on the beach. Okay? That's what we did. So I remember my senior year, I went to this conference. It was near the end of the conference, and at night, we went across from where the um, conference center was to get some late-night food at the Waffle House because college students love horrible food. Um, so we went to the Waffle House, and did I just insult like 30% of you? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, so I walk in, and when I walked in, I see a table of people sitting over here to my right, and I recognize one of them fr um, from back at school. Um, I went to Virginia Tech, and I'd seen him on campus, but I didn't see him that week at all. He wasn't with our conference. So I, I walked up to him, and I was like, hey, my name's Shelby. I go to Virginia Tech. What's your name? And he's like, I'm Garrett. He was like, yeah, I go to Virginia Tech too. Like, and I was like, hey, we should hang out sometime when we get back to campus. Would you be willing to do that? Sure. He gave me his number. Um, I gave him my number. Um, when we got back to campus, I called him. That's what you used to do with phones. You would call people. Um, there's a free app on your phone called a phone. You can use it to call people. Um, but I called him when we got back, and we got together at, uh, to, at lunch to talk about the gospel. And it was at Taco Bell because college students love horrible food. So we sat down, and um, I asked him what he was doing at spring break there. Turns out when I saw him at the Waffle House, he was stoned. And I found, yeah, it was, I don't know if it was by God's grace that he actually remembered that we should get together. So I shared the gospel with him there. Um, he didn't actually place his trust in Christ that day, but two weeks later, through a series of events that I won't get into, Garrett trusted Christ. He asked Jesus to come into his life, forgive him of his sins, transform him from the inside, and make him the kind of person that God wanted him to be. In Garrett's life, I've never seen a clearer example of someone doing a 180-degree turn in their life. Garrett was a very tall, very cut, very good-looking guy. All the women wanted to be with him. All the guys wanted to be like him. He had a, a live-in girlfriend, and he also had three female roommates at the time he accepted Christ. Um, he broke up with his girlfriend. He moved out of his apartment. Uh, he was drinking and smoking all the time. He stopped cold turkey with everything. Um, he started talking to other people about what he believed, and he realized because of the way he looked the way that his physique was and how people were drawn to him, he, I remember him talking to me and saying, I could use that for the glory of Jesus somehow, can't I? And I was like, sure, go ahead. <laughs> so he would just share his faith with everybody, with everybody. He was from this little tiny town in West Virginia called Berkeley Springs. And he was like the top dog back in high school. And he said, you know what? I should use this. Everybody in Berkeley Springs knows me. I'm going to put on like... Like a, like a Billy Graham crusade back at my high school. This is the late 90s, all right? So just don't roll your eyes that much. But he, he decided to go back over the summer after his senior year and put on what he called a very 
you know, boringly named Christ Night. That's what it was called. He rented out his high school gymnasium, invited everybody from town. He invited me to come too. I'll never forget when I got there, hundreds of people were in this gymnasium, hundreds of people. And he did like a, a gospel presentation from up front, old school altar call, come up to the front if you want to accept Jesus, kneel down right here and I'll pray for you. Dozens of people came up to the front, dozens. And I'll never forget Garrett walking around, putting his hand on people's heads, praying for them as God used him to usher people into the kingdom. He did another Christ night the next summer. Dozens more people came to Christ, went to seminary, became a pastor. He's now the lead pastor at Delray Baptist Church in Northern Virginia, and he's on the board with the Gospel Coalition today. See, doubt has no match for that. Why? Because sharing the gospel is what we were made for. That's what you were made for. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is not just a charge for the special Christians. It's a charge to anyone who follows Christ. Look at me. There is no junior varsity in the kingdom of God. My sophomore year, I've been, a, I've been a Christian for a year, a baby Christian. I was 20 years old. I've been a Christian for one year. I was on campus with my Bible study leader, this guy in crew. His name's Dave. We were talking about something. I made him laugh. And after he laughed, he got real serious, and he looked me right in the eyes, and he goes, Shelby, you've got so much stinking potential if you would just live up to it. Baby Christian. Been a Christian for a year. And that hurt when he said that. That hurt me. It injured me. But at the same time, what did it do? Dave, he just raised the bar in my life. Jump higher because you can and you should. Allow me to raise the bar in your life. Allow me to challenge you for a second. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, all of your life is not meant to be lived in the comfort of remaining silent about your faith. The discomfort that can come as a result of sharing your faith is a fantastic weapon against doubt. As we preach the gospel to others in a loving and caring way, we are reminded of God's love and care for us, pushing doubt out of our lives and awakening worship in our hearts. Let me conclude with this. Doubt is a battle worth fighting. Why? Because it's not just about this battle. It's not just this battle that's at stake. It's also the battle for our future. If we aren't diligent to proactively trust the Lord and take the fight to our doubts in an intentional way, the ripple effects can be disastrous. I know, I've seen it. Some people start to doubt, and then they get more, more and more uh, intrigued by the doubts, and they ask more questions, and they never really answer anything. They kind of celebrate doubt, and that moves them further and further away. But now, doubt is not meant to be celebrated. D treat doubt like a house guest. When somebody comes over to your house for the weekend, they're sleeping on your couch, they're putting dishes in the sink, they're using your bathroom, they're messing your life up, right? But on Sunday, they're always meant to pack up their stuff and leave. And that's what doubt should be like in your life. Doubt can come in and mess things up for you for a little bit, but it's always meant to pack up its stuff and leave. It would be weird if your house guest came over and then pitched a tent in your living room and said, I'm just going to hang out here indefinitely, right? But some people do that with doubt. They let it live in the home of their heart, and it disrupts things, and they slowly back away from what they believe. So let's not celebrate our doubts, but let's not be afraid of them either. 
Our God is a God of action. He is constantly moving and working in our lives in a way that's very much up in our business. We are created in his image. So when it's difficult to trust in him and doubts flood your heart and your mind, fight. Fight back. We shouldn't just sit around and wait for our doubts to kind of subside on their own. They'll go away eventually. No. Get proactive and passionate because it's about way more than just this battle. God is good. He cares about us deeply. And even though there may be pain in the process, we can trust him because we know the lengths he went to in order to be with us. He died so that we could live. He became poor so that we might be rich in him. He emptied himself so that we might be filled. He thirsted so that we might not ever thirst. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you love us, that you care about us, that you want us to engage in our doubts, even when things are hard. And, and Lord, you know I've experienced this. You've used my doubts specifically to build up my relationship with you. You've, you've used my doubts to make me stronger. Like working out in a gym, a, a muscle breaks down, but it builds up stronger. And that's what doubt can do in our lives. And I pray that we would be women and men who deal with our doubts in an appropriate way that, that make us stronger, but we would lean into our relationship with you instead of slowly back away. We would practice thankfulness. We would engage in community. We would preach the gospel to ourselves, and we would preach the gospel to others as well. We love you, Jesus. We do this all for you because it's about you and your glory, and it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.